You're listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And this one is long, was long overdue. I'll explain why in a minute. First of all, I want to say we are proud partners of Osiris Media, aren't we, Seth? Yes, we are, as well as uh, Jam Bass. Let's not forget the base of the jam, my friend. They are our partners. They're very cool to us. And uh, I do want to mention cool to the scene, man. Cool the scene. All the scene. Um, Absolutely. Especially like I always say, I love to go to their streams, part of their site and see what's coming up for for live streams. You know, I love couch tour. And by the way, this is a Disco Biscuits episode. If you're a fan of Disco Biscuits, you should check out touchdowns all day and you should check out couch tour TV. They bring the concerts home to you. All the disco, most of the Disco Biscuits shows webcasts run there. So you should check that out. Yes, as I said. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you like most about touchdowns all day, which is on the Osiris media? Oh, my gosh. Sometimes you'll have John Barber, who's the lead guitarist of the Disco Biscuits, playing a jam and and talking you through the jam, even like the decisions points. It's kind of like what Amar does in Anatomy of a Jam, but with one of the guys who's executing the jam. That's just one of the many things you get on touchdowns all day. It is a great episode and it is. And by the way, it's 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 credited as as um, as we mentioned in this interview and we've mentioned other times on the podcast. It's a big part of the biscuits getting back on the road, because when Gut Willard got in, interested in that podcast it was just before he got interested in touring again. Seth. Interesting. Well, folks, you can go to OsirisPod.com to check out that and more. Yes, absolutely. Now, this is long overdue because I have had the good fortune to have been seeing the biscuits since way back in 90, I think 96, a New Year's 19. run. 19. Yes, nine, <laughs> 1996. <laughs> well, you said long, it could have been 1896, you know, for all. You're an old man. Well, the first time I went was actually to see ominous sea pods after seeing fish. Oh, and I remember the- I wandered upstairs with your and, top down and um, the biscuits were playing on another level. And I was like, wow, what is this? And the jams are wonderful. They were they really cool. And then they did Pygmy Twilight, which I'm a big Zappa fan. And I was impressed with the cover of that. And by the end of the night, I was a biscuits fan. So very cool. Been was around them a lot in the early days. Not so much as the years went by, but I've been wanting and craving to interview Aaron Magner for a long time. And finally, at the baseball stadium where the Gwinnett Stripers play, we got to do it. What did you mm-hmm. think, Seth? We, first time when we interviewed Bruiser, we were in the dugout. Now they provided a suite for us for this interview. Well, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It was sweet. <laughs> you, 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 you can't even turn away even the most obvious of puns, can you? No. Why would I? I mean, by the way, our listeners expect that. They don't they don't expect me to be funny. They expect me to be punny. I mean, really? Like, you know, we get, we get we make a lot of money doing this, Rob. Oh, yeah. That's why there's not many of them. Um, So check out discobiscuits.com for their upcoming tour dates. Um, they're playing the Brooklyn Bowl when Fish is out there in Vegas, the Brooklyn Bowl in Vegas and the Caverns right in Tennessee, right, right over there. I might have to go to one of these. Uh, November 10th, uh, 19th, 20th, and 21st. And these shows, these biscuits have been selling out. So if you want to go buy tickets, people don't wait, don't, don't do the jam band fan thing and wait till the last minute and then complain about sold out shows. And if you're like, your curious, and if you're like curious, like what do they sound like? I haven't seen them in so long. Go to Nugs. Nugs uh, has Good a point. lot of their shows and, and you could check it out. And there's a lot of video out there too, but I, I mean, the band seems pretty fired up lately. Uh, not just from the show we saw, but just, just in general, wouldn't you say so? Like, I mean, just, just, yeah, they seem Absolutely. excited about playing. 
there's a rejuvenation going on. There's an infusion of new material. There's a new interest on the band members in, in the band. There's a lot of old fans coming back. A lot of new fans they are pulling from the dead community a lot because well, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, Rob, they're, they're inverting their fan base. Oh, oh, do, do, do. I do want to note that some of this uh, conversation we talked about, Billy and the kids, we're going to hold most of that for a future episode on Billy and the kids. But there was a certain juicy part that we do want to get in on this episode and we're going to save it for you. So, so tune in with us in the outro because we got something really special for you just before we uh, we give you an example of, of full versions of his of an ambient song, which Aaron has been mm-hmm. working on that. That came out of COVID and a Spaga song, which is uh, Aaron's side project, more jazz based. We learned both of them. We learn about both of them and we learn some great stuff about the disco biscuits. We even go in the way back machine, Seth, in this interview. So, so no, no, premature way back, premature way back. <laughs> there, thank you for unwaybacking. So could you uh, take us to the interview, Seth? Take me yes. to the river. Take me to the magna. Yes, it's the Magna Cata. All right, folks, enjoy this. And well, we hope you enjoy this interview. Without further uh, Turner, it's now time. We expect you to enjoy this interview. Shimon gets the nice microphone because because I'm your rock engineer, right? But like you know, number one, shouldn't either like your elder get the you know nice microphone? Just, just look at this guy. You think he could handle it? More, more like the guest. He would I break the guest. I'm thinking. I, right. Well, I need to invest in a better microphone. That's on me. Well, but this is video. This if it was video, bring I would your give own you the microphone. Mic. I did not realize. Seth wants his horrible puns to be heard clearly. I guess, which is great for the listeners. <laughs> You know, listen, puns are getting me laid right now. So did you just ask me casually, like, so how was your pandemic? How was your <laughs> pandemic? <laughs> what did you cook? Uh, um, Remember to stay on that mic. You really want to know how my pandemic was? Well, it led into your, uh, re you got recharged in ambient music, sort of, indirectly. Oh, you told me ambient. I thought you meant he was on ambient. You're, no, you really no, confused no. me. I don't, I, don't, I don't do the ambient. That's I need to do I. Um, so, you know, listen, 
it was tough. It was tough for everybody um, to varying degrees on different time points throughout the pandemic, right? right. Um, you know, certainly for musicians and for parents um, and, you know, definitely for myself. And then... And let's also mention people who lost family members who, like, just disappear. You don't get to say goodbye. 100%. And, Awful. And most, and most rough for all those people, no doubt. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm not alone in people that, you know, developed anxiety and depression and, you know, the, the fear of the unknown and not knowing a, a path and questioning the path that you had previously taken and, you know, all for naught and everything like that. So, though, I do think that being an artist, you need, you know, time afforded to you in order to be able to create and one of the many things that stymies artists you know aside from distractions or or your own personal demons or whatever is kind of a lack of time right you know you're on the road all the time you're distracted with other life activities you know parenting or anything else so you would figure that you know this time period would be afforded to be a creative time period for musicians and it was for a lot of musicians but the other thing to contend with was you know this like anxiety and depression and everything like that that kind of like comes with it so it's not like you know you're able to fully receive the muses that you would like to be able to be open and receptive to because there's all these other you know blockages preventing you from even wanting to start um However, you know, kind of like pushing through that to the best of my abilities at different points throughout the pandemic definitely afforded me the ability to kind of express myself creatively in ways that I didn't know I had the ability to, right? You know, whether it's the necessity, the mother of, you know, invention or whatever the phrase is, that might have been the case. So with the ambient project that you were just talking about, that kind of came about or organically in that, you know, playing around in my home studio with, you know, no specific purpose, right? It's just like, all I had to, all I had was, you know, time and my instruments and I didn't have any musicians to play with. And, you know, we'd already done the whole, like, trying to collaborate with, you know, other musicians distanced and, you know, the latency and the, yeah. the you know, je ne sais quoi of, of, of not being there with another musician in your own presence and being able to feed off of that energy. It's just it's more like, like studio where you're adding to something that's yeah, already there I mean, rather you know, than playing we, with we, someone. Totally. And we made the lemonade, you know, of like right. sending tracks back and forth to each other and the Brady Bunch squares and everything like that and tried to do things, but it was barely a replacement, you know, for the real thing. So, and, and frustrating with every step of the way of, you know, the technology and, you know, knowing the um, flow of energy that you usually have in a situation where you can be physically present with somebody, you know, with another musician, right? So all those things were just fucking annoying um and you know once i realized that like okay this is going to be about you know me and playing with, for lack of a better phrase playing with myself and i don't really consider myself a a, a a solo player right you know on on you know anything even if it's like solo piano which i got into later in the pandemic but 
I think you played a solo set on Jam Cruise. That's about it. Right, right. And that's kind of like unlike me and, you know, just kind of saying yes to things that, you know, hopefully pushes me in a more creative direction and usually positive things come out of it. But the ambient stuff was particularly neat because I was just playing with my synths and, you know, computer software and, you know, playing these really pleasant and like evolving tones, evolving pads, you know, this type of like you hold down a chord and, you know, more life kind of comes out of, you know, just that chord. And then you could flow into the next one, just these long elongated notes that kind of breathe as it develops. And my wife came into my studio and she was like, can you, make the house sound more like that. You know, it's so calming and peaceful. And what I realized was that was kind of my form of meditation, you know, and for better or worse, I am not really one that like has, has spent much time trying to meditate before. Not even yoga? Huh? Did you ever get into yoga? <sighs> no, I mean, I've done it, you know, but it's just, I don't I've never really explored it to any sort of depth that I, you know, was able to get things out of it that I see other people really get out of yoga and get out of meditation. But this was my own self-soothing, right? And, you know, also the fact that I was doing it for no purpose whatsoever, you know, there was no timeline of trying to finish something yet or, you know, wanting to like, okay, that's cool. Hey, I'm going to make an ambient album. Let me make another track. It's just like, I just kept on making them because I had nothing else to do. So there's a purity to the creation. It's kind of could be key to the success of it. Right. And, you know, had a lot of tracks and, and months and months passed by, um, you know, and I was kind of over it a little bit, you know, spent some serious time with it and then kind of got over it. Like it was a long pandemic, you know, but, but through and, that pandemic though, you've, it's, it was an accordion though, because let's face it, like you guys, uh, the disco biscuits, you were able to do that. What was it the Philly park? The, the Phillies. Yeah. Play. I mean, that was so like, you were one of the few bands that actually got to play as a band together. Right, right. But that's one night. And that was, but it was, there was still practice. There was still, you know, being able to do that. Whereas other bands, they were like nine months, 12 months even, where they didn't play together. Well, we had, we got really lucky with that one, right? In that it was such a phenomenal idea. It was, you know, there was purpose behind it, you know, raising money for um, plus one for black lives, you know, in the summer of 2020, Mm -hmm. it felt right. We had the full support of Live Nation behind us. You know, it was such a cool idea. And then the cinematography, too, of just us set up around second base, you know, with with a completely empty, you know, 80,000 capacity Citizens Bank Park and nobody there was all lit up, too. And it was Yeah. Yeah. But, it, you know, it gave you this sense of, um, I don't want to say loneliness, but it was kind of representative of like what we were all experiencing, too, of right. like, you know, there's yeah. this Isolation. huge, right, there's this huge world out there that we know is huge, yet we're just, you know, isolated in this like tiny little spot and then everything <laughs> is, you know, vacant around us. Um, so I thought that that was really fucking cool. Yeah. But things like that, though, like, you know, having that. Instead of, and then being able to do the ambient thing and then being able to have the time to like do the piano sessions that you were doing and like, and, and you know, all those different things. It's, it seems like th- those are the things that probably help keep you sane or, um, yeah, sure. Focused, busy, you know, um, and then 
so the ambient stuff um, actually those released months and months later because my wife and God bless her for it is you know always kind of like you know cheerleading me along to like say you need to put this out into the world you know like it's it get it off your computer and then get it out into the world and helping me along the way with that but and then we kind of became like a team as we are because we're married but you know we became a team after the same purpose of trying to do something new and creative together and you know she's an eye doctor but like you know now an unemployed or then an unemployed eye doctor so we had like all this time and every Saturday night from November through March, you know, we were doing these live piano streams, these private piano sets. And she set everything up on OBS and, you know, multiple cameras. And it felt like a concert. And, you know, we would both get like a little nervous before, you know, opening <laughs> up the stream. And, you know, we'd like high five when it was like a really good show or talk about the or things the like oh, I cut to the wrong angle, you know, like, yeah, that's the thing. Like we're still in this improvisation setting where like things can go wrong and there's something kind of like alive about that yeah were your kids in the room too or no we would relegate them to the basement during these performances they're what five six seven Uh, nine nine year old twins and a seven year old little guy those are his four angels his wife and his three kids he has a song a spaga song called four angels about them um so um yeah, and, and and then earlier in the summer we were also doing these like streams on Saturday nights, but um, comprised of like more electronic music that I was doing in the studio. And it took me a long time to kind of sit down at the piano and kind of like put together a set at the piano. Um, but what was particularly cool about that, like I said before, I don't consider myself a solo piano mm-hmm. player, but. You know, you take somebody like Joel, for instance, right? He's got like a massive, you know, amazing songbook of, you know, whether it's Linus and Lucy or Chopin or, Tchaikovsky. you know, right, you know, or, or some Humphrey songs mixed I was in. Don't be a pussy, play some Debussy. <laughs> ah, but, yeah. um, but, but I kind of took the opportunity to, for the very first time, take these you know biscuit songs that you know we'd been lacking right you know we 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 hadn't really you know had the opportunity you know yes we did an october drive-in tour but for all the fans and myself included these songs hadn't really been able to be performed um and then reinterpreted for solo piano where you know i can do anything right i could like rearrange the harmony i can you know put it in a different meter i put songs in different keys um so that i could you know do things that i wouldn't normally come naturally because I'm used to playing it in the same key. But yeah, you know, there was definitely some creative things that definitely came out of the pandemic and released some tracks and had, you know, a couple sets that were put together. You know, the Biscuits were able to figure out a lot of really cool things that, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was very hard. It was constantly, you know, a, a big step forward and two steps back the whole pandemic, like even just trying to figure out the easiest thing, like getting together, you know, it was like, okay, we're going to do this and here are the dates that work. And then something would happen, you know, mm-hmm. the, whether it was trying to plan for a show and the governor would shut down a show right. or whether, you know, we're, we're going to plan for like a, a new year stream. We had like an amazing concept for, to do for a new year stream. And don't forget Nothing really happened over New Year's yeah, in all, 2020, right? We all right? were thinking something was going to happen, like a right. fish thing or something. I fish medicine. Stuff. Uh, I mean, no, I nothing. feel like we all ended up watching like Anderson Cooper on <laughs> CNN to like an awkward Times Square, you know? 
but so that's why I feel like the idea that we had um, to pull off a, a three night stream just would have crushed because there was nothing else going on. Yeah. What, are we going to go into like TLA or something? Go into a Philly room? We, we had an undisclosed location, you know, and it was going to be something, something to the effect of like, you know, um, live from nowhere, right? And this like aesthetic that kind of came with where are they streaming from? Nowhere, you know, and kind of like how you aesthetically represent um, nowhere in a stream, you know? Is it like a, a, a vortex or a portal or, you know, something like that? And kept on like running with this imagery of where how do you represent nowhere i was really excited for it um and and then same thing like you know one step forward two steps back then mark came down with covid and had to like shut it all down you know and and those types of things were just happening constantly you know all we had to do with time is to try and think of new and creative and fun ideas to try and do something and then there was always some sort of variable that would get in the way it was so difficult you so know? as you get towards the end of COVID, things are starting to loosen up, and your booking now, you know, your booking agent and management are starting to replot your tours and all that. How involved were you all in that process, or are you just kind of like, because I mean, I just imagine that it kept switching directions because there's so many bands and everyone's trying to get back in and the venues and just like and if I may point out before the pandemic, the Biscuits had scheduled their longest tour in about oh, that's right. 10, 11 years, and right, we lost that. Um, I mean, we've always been involved in you know all the aspects of our business since we were young um and i feel like any artist should you know be paying attention how much involvement you want to have is kind of like up to you but like i don't think that you should leave you know the entire business yeah. side of you know yourself as a musician you know to other people it's one thing to you know trust somebody and have them you know advise and lead um you know so jagger could, sits in on every meeting to this day totally right i mean you know the musicians need to be able to concentrate on their, their music business, but yeah. but i feel like you can't go blindly you know trusting the the people that you you hire um you know to help lead your career you need to be integrally involved in it but there was definitely strategy there um to try and be first to market, you know, and beat the traffic of the reopening, which I think, you know, being that this is kind of the end of our, you know, quote unquote tour, right? You know, we have like a month off and then some spotty shows, you know, at the end of August and stuff like that. But that was was the point to beat the traffic and mm -hmm. become the we're, first into into market. Yeah. We're at Lawrenceville mid-July, just before the release of Spaga's first full length and the City Bisco was last weekend. Yeah which I watched. That was wild. That was great. Um, but I don't want to... Uh, before we move on, I want to talk about Spaga. You now, it's Jason Fraticelli uh -huh. and um, Matt Scarano is your drummer. Uh -huh. And they both have shared history in Modest Yahoo, but a lot of jazz history and stuff beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Particularly Jason. I was pretty impressed with... Uh, what did I see that he got a grant from the Pew Foundation with one of his other projects? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I... I can't say enough positive things about um, these musicians, um, just their innate talent um, and how special it is to be around that. You know, I've I, myself, I've learned an incredible amount about myself as a musician by playing with musicians of that caliber. And as a composer? Um, I, I feel like, you know, the composer side of me was was looking inward and and finding my own voice, mm -hmm. um, which has 
taken me a long time and I feel like I'm just beginning to discover that voice. Uh, but in terms of the musicianship that, you know, I'm beginning to express a lot of that is influenced by being able to play with musicians of, of that caliber. Um, so yeah, like, you know, the grant stuff, like Jason is an incredible composer, you know, not just a musician and, you know, does get grants in order to do these crazy projects that, you know, involve a lot of musicians and studio time and, you know, the, the uh, first and foremost, the time to write it, you know, so it's nice to be able to have foundations that provide grants like that for musicians to provide, all, you know, some money. How did Spaga come to be, though? I mean, you, were you itching to do something like on the jazz front, or did it did it present itself to you, or did you present it? Um, it kind of started out as w with some friends that you know were pushing me in a direction to start my own like solo thing and just experiment a little bit. Um, and you know, before I joined the Disco Biscuits, I was yeah, kind of a jazz musician. Um, you know, I, I like to say, I, I borrow from Bruce Hornsby's line, you know, because Bruce does this thing too, where he, you know, borrows from jazz in his music a lot, but doesn't consider himself like I don't consider myself a jazz musician. And, and Bruce says, I'm a friend of jazz. You know, <laughs> I, I, could, like I, could, I can speak the language and I have utmost respect for the jazz musicians, but I don't consider myself a jazz musician, but I am certainly a friend of jazz. I drink with jazz. There you go. Um, so before the project was really like a project, I had kind of like a couple of jazzier, um, tunes that I had like written and didn't know what to do with. And they certainly weren't right for the disco biscuits. Um, and then was able to use like, you know, my computer to emulate a trio and stuff like that. It's getting loud out there. Know, it's just kind of like it goes with the story. You're like, <laughs> yeah. it's underscoring your words. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, you know, I called Jason first because I specifically knew that I wanted Jason in the band. Jason and I had known each other for, you know, some time. We hadn't really played together ever, but, you know, Philadelphia musicians, it's, you know, a, a pretty close-knit uh, group of musicians. And then he recommended Scarano and, you know, never really thought about bringing in anybody else. It was, it was perfect. The vibe was great. It took me a while to kind of like convince, convince is the wrong word, but to, to have them understand the vision that I also had for this project. When they first joined, it was kind of like, you know, they, they felt more coming in as session players, you know, and then when the album, and, and, you know, they would come in for the parts and then I would kind of, you know, sit with the producer afterwards and start to sculpt this stuff and figure out what else needed to be done. So, um, so I mean, at this point, they're not looking at it looking at it as a, like this is a band this is just kind of a one-time thing yeah and then i think once the songs on the album started getting like you know closer to to being done um and they started to understand the big picture and i kept on saying it was like i want to be able to use the foot in the door that i already have because i'm the keyboard player of the disco biscuits to be able to introduce this band to an audience that wouldn't normally you know go to check out jazz so to be able to you know get this band on, on you know the halloween festival or resonance festival or you know even just playing a room in philly that you know you wouldn't normally play as a jazz trio but like i want to play rooms not 
jazz clubs. I want to play rooms where there was a dance party the night before. Interesting, because that can be tricky with the listening, you know? It can. That can be an elusive thing. Kind of reminds me, like, though, like, I mean, I'm wondering on the fans' perspective, right? Because think about, like, when, like, Jimmy Herring does his solo, did a first solo tour a couple years ago. We were at the Variety Playhouse, and, like, you know, you have all the Panic fans, like, yelling for him to play Panic tunes, and he's like... Right, but that's loud, and a lot of notes. A lot of it's real quiet, although they, they deconstruct, like, Zeppelin tunes well, but you get stuff. my point though on a fan like you know you have oh yeah you throw in a curveball they, they know you they might not know the project they come expecting one thing how how do you transform them are they open to it um you know we're still trying to figure out whether we want a seated crowd or whether you know because it's you're gonna pay, you're gonna pay more attention when you're seated yeah. and you know when you're standing you're also kind of more involved because you could sway a little bit and dance a little bit or you know whatever it is to immerse yourself more in the music but with that also comes you know wanting to talk to your you know neighbor or going back up to the bar or whatever it is so i'm not sure there's a balance there somewhere that's the elusive thing. Because Marco goes in with his trio into these rock clubs and various uh, levels of success as far as attentiveness in the crowd. They're a louder band than Spaga. You know? Yeah. I, I, would, I would agree. Which, by the way, the name Spaga comes out of your, your song Spaga, which is epic, multi-section disco biscuit song that goes way back. Well, how did you name that song Spaga? Where did that name for the song come from? <laughs> um... There. <sighs> Do you remember that venue on like the shore of Rhode Island? Ocean Mist. Ocean Mist. Bam. And there well, was. That's where Mark and I first hung out. And wow. there was a band that, uh, you know, this is 1997, whatever it was. There was a band that would either open for us or we would open for them. Foxtrot Zulu? No. <laughs> no. R- Rye Duck. I don't remember them. They had uh, they they had a song that I still remember. I don't think your poop don't stink. I don't, and then like all in harmony. I don't think your poop don't stink. <laughs> I don't know. That's the one Rydeck song. But uh, their their lead singer or something. His name was like his name was Spaga Spago Spaga, and somehow Sammy started calling me that, and that became like my nickname, but it was really only adopted by Sammy. He still calls me that to this day. Um, and then the song and whatever imagery that I had of, you know, Knight in Shining Armor and Spaga. Um, and then needed a name for, like, this project, right? And it was like, okay, I could go with the lowest hanging fruit of, like, you know, uh, the Aaron Magner trio or something like that, but that seemed a little silly. And I thought that having a name that was familiar, you know, though I understand the confusion of, like, wait, it's also a song, but I thought it was, like, a name that kind of, like, stood out, a name that I like putting in capital letters as opposed to, like, an acronym or something. I don't know. You know, I feel like part of the deal with naming yourself as a band is like you have to go through like, I'm not sure whether I love it. <laughs> well, right? I mean, hey, you could be stuck with the name like Humphreys McGee. I know, the, worst. <laughs> the best band has the worst name. It's so hilarious. <laughs> but how about as a composer? Um, is there ever a contradiction between wanting to write something interesting and wanting to write something that can blossom in improv improvisationally live 
Like, can you, if you put too much into a composition, can that limit the improv? Whereas with Spaga, Spaga it seems like you want to improvise with these guys. You want that to be a heavy part of it. So does that factor into your songwriting? Yeah, I mean, the songs need to be the songs, and then you find the improvisational parts afterwards. Right, but if it's the more complex the song is, is it harder to work improv in it, or is that... No. No, I don't think so. I mean, no. I, I, I think the there's natural points in every song where you figure out, like, oh, okay, this is the part we can improvise into. This is the part we could improvise out from. This is a part that we can, you know, dissect, and as we're playing it, this can become a new jam moment, right? So that's, you know, I feel like that's one of the staple things that the Disco Biscuits have done, right? It's not just the, you know, eh, the inverted, the dyslexic, but always <laughs> finding new points in the songs um, to be able to, you know, jam from and, and and it always amazes me that there's you know i don't want to say infinite opportunities to do that but there's always new found moments to be able to do that i mean last night even in the opening of on time last night we took a section that we don't normally open up and you know opened it up in first song of the night so we didn't open it up huge um but you know we'd never really jammed off of that like you know how, bridge how does, middle section how does that decision go is that like something i mean on the fly on the fly but who's kind of taking lead and how are you communicating with each other it'll be like all right yeah let's go i felt you were leading the band at the beginning of the show it was a very magner heavy open to the show that but I, you can never really tell but it seemed like you were you were pushing them out in that direction um well we that, that section of on time we definitely spoke about oh. in sound check okay. and i feel like if we're gonna find new moments which you know we're always seeking those out i feel like they are discussed a lot and not necessarily played in sound check or backstage rehearsal but it'll be like hey let's try going out of this section you know and and those are the most fun for me because it's like well i always know what it's sort of going to sound like for the first 10 20 seconds when we go out of the normal section of mm -hmm. that song before we find ourselves in a different improvisational land but if we're going out of this section which we've never done before then what's that going to sound like and those are the moments that i kind of live for the like, yeah, unknowns. makes it exciting yeah makes well, going to work fun yeah <laughs> but I also want to say that the, the, a lot of your fans, your listeners, are right on top of all that stuff and really dissect it, which suggests to me that they might enjoy a jazz trio listening to it. You know, it's a similar kind of listening, even though it's a completely different type of music. I mean, you know, people do, but... Um you know, not in the, uh, not with the volume of people that, you know, want to see a, sure. a, a dance driven or guitar driven or loud, you know, type of band. Yeah. But enough to make um, it viable, enough to sure. get people in the clubs. Sure. And, and, and that's kind of like one of the special things about Spaga to me is like introducing this, you know, very American, you know, art form, um, you know, African American art form yeah. to, to people that that don't usually, sub, you know, open themselves up to jazz. But the reality, going back to what you said, is the music that these folks love is a derivative of jazz. Is all you know? Absolutely, right. Most of them seem to get that. But now, also, the Biscuits haven't had an infusion of, of new material for the first time in a while. Now, how much of that is collaborative? Um, some. Most of it is coming from from John. You know, um, what songs do you feel you have had the most input in on compositionally of the new, of the new songs? Do I feel like I have what you've had the most input in compositionally? Um, well, we did just. I mean, what's what's most topical, I guess, um, is this 
new uh, electronic song that we debuted at The Man, which is also something that came out of the pandemic of just like me creating music, you know, with my computer and, you know, my stage setup basically in my, you know, home mm. studio. So kind of like had that available to me and wrote like a very, you know, almost like anthemic style electronic song and sent it to the band at some point, you know, during the later part of the pandemic and didn't really get a response on it, whether it was, you know, fell to the bottom of the email or sometimes you're just not feeling things. So didn't really know. And then brought it back up again a couple of weeks ago and was like, you know, are you guys hearing any parts on this? Like, you know, I'm kind of digging it. And that was the first time that I think that like ears were open right now that like the anxiety of the pandemic was starting to subside for everybody and we right. can be more receptive to creative things and, you know, got some really positive feedback feedback from from the band was like dude this song is awesome which song is that we haven't titled it yet we debuted it at the man last week um how do you debut it without the title is this just jam or <laughs> doesn't matter because oh, yeah, sure. the e thing the e because it doesn't matter i think i think we're gonna call it evolve evolve it seems to be the the working title right now um and we're playing that tonight where the title came from as we were trying to figure out what to name it you know how this song evolves over time because that's what happens you put a song into the set perhaps prematurely you know but like you get to explore it and figure out what is going to happen and how it will evolve over time just by putting it up on stage you know and then eventually once it's at that point go into the studio and record it and work on it some more so you think the band the biscuits will go in the studio soon i mean that's always the hope 
And that's always the hope. Because there's a hunger for fresh biscuits and a tour out there. I think you guys would crush if you do the tour, something similar to what you had scheduled. Right. I mean, people were really excited. Did you, did you feel like John, starting with the, doing his podcast and digging into his own music, kind of helped mm. fuel his interest in doing more than just spot gigs? Um, sure. I mean, it definitely keeps him immersed in the band, you know, which is important for sure. Now that um, he lives... 25 30 minutes for me he's not in vegas anymore no he was in la he went from he went from vegas to la and then to pennsylvania so he lives like a half hour from me and you know now that again you know things from the pandemic are starting to subside we're getting together certainly more frequently Mm -hmm. like this you know we're talking about like collaborative stuff this the last batch of tunes that that he wrote um it's like april of 2019 and i flew out to la and kind of worked with him for a few days to you know to help get this stuff into so it's not just him you know (laughs) in in his mind like because you know is this good is this not good yo check this out what chords would you put underneath this melody you know that type of thing and we had like a really good flow together for that time that i was working out in la with him um and then kind of we're just beginning to revisit that type of flow and collaboration by you know being able to get together at each other's houses um what's the freebus stuff there's a couple freebus songs yeah i i I love the freebus stuff i i cannot recall the genesis of of why it's called freebus what which songs are you most excited about as far as in the live setting not not studio wise i'm sure that'll play out whenever you get in the studio but live of those new songs uh i i i really loved playing that evolve song last week and excited to see where it goes i love playing uh running into the night i think it's actually one of the the, the best of the batch of the new songs could be a good set closer i think you've already used it as a, set, a reprise it, of it, I, isn't it i like i really like um jamming like into it um and i feel like we've really like hit our stride with understanding how that song goes now whereas some of the other songs were were still getting there you know we're still trying to like figure out like you know hey we we were onto something with anthem you know in in 20 whatever 19 um and we and we lost a little something let's go over it and try and recapture that energy you know and trying to dissect and that's what we do that's what musicians do so Mm -hmm. sometimes it's not even explainable you know it's not like hey you know play this part instead of this part you know sometimes it's just some sort of collective let's play this more deliberately so that we can capture energy differently and then like do songs blow up where you're not even expect like champions last weekend seemed to blow up were you does that surprise you when a song like that just do you remember that at all i mean i i was like raging in my freaking i know i know Uh, i think it blew up more more than that song previously blows up I don't know. I don't know. I'm not as familiar with that one. Hmm. Is, is that? Oh, got it. That's fun. See, you're not familiar with right all, with all this stuff. Them. I know, and, I, and then it. you hit. I, but I'm always looking for the new. I'm always right. looking to advance the ball with bands I love. I right. want to hear the new. Move on. But champions. What's what's the story behind that one? Um, chord progression that Mark came up with. You know, it's like it's pretty. Um simple for what it is so you could kind of like you know jam into it really easily jam out of it really easily it doesn't have section after section it doesn't have a fugue it has you know this repetitive chorus that i think benji eisen wrote the lyrics to oh really yeah right on benji i I believe that's the case so don't don't somebody's gonna need to fact check me on that 
Um, I'm sure Benji's willing to take the credit. Those are the type of songs, though, that like, uh, and I speak on behalf of Joey Lichter, and I speak on behalf of myself. We run, and that's the music that like empowers us when running. It just like totally like gives us that extra energy. need to respect each thing for what it is right and and i say this a lot about you know different types of keyboards right like just because you play piano doesn't mean that you can play organ right and you know just because you play organ doesn't mean you can play a synthesizer you know and because just because you play a synthesizer doesn't mean you can play clav they're different instruments you know and your approach to them though they're still the same theory with the black and white keys and everything you know so the theory is all the same but your approach to them needs to be different right from keyboard to keyboard and though i definitely borrow you know my musicality from one instrument keyboard instrument to another same thing with like the bands you know i do borrow from spaga and some you know jazzy influences from spaga has made its way into the biscuits some um you know some uh, uh, some voice leadings and chordal structures that you know i get from the amazing catalog of Grateful Dead music. I borrow into, you know, the Disco Biscuits as well, but not that much, not that much of the jazzy borrow into the Disco Biscuits. You know, that's just my, my, my personality, not that much of, you know, chordal structures and, and movement from Grateful Dead material into the Biscuits. The Biscuits are, our own unique thing and yes we've all been influenced by the different types of music that you know have influenced us as musicians and you know that's what led us to become a jam band in the first place we all like so many different styles of music and if we're a jam band we could be all styles of music you know but now the disco biscuits have um you know our own and very unique voice and at different periods of time in our career we might have lost sight of that right 
2012, whatever it was, 2011, summer of 2011, we were on identity tour. We were the only band and very much a black sheep with a whole bunch of DJs as mm-hmm. DJ was, you know, the, the, the rock star of that summer. Right. Um, and it looked weird that we had instruments on that tour and we could feel that it felt weird <laughs> to everybody else. You know, it's a lot more of a pain in the ass setting up a band than it was setting up a DJ. And ironically, the, DJ music that is, you know, pre-produced where you could, you know, kind of like do the thing at the end of the day has a lot more power in it when you perform pre-produced music than what we're able to recreate as a band. And that was pretty obvious of like, you know, when you want to like get the crowd excited, Biscuits have our own way of getting the crowd excited and, you know, jumping up and down in bliss, right? In the same way that DJs do, but the amount of power juxtaposed to the trying to do that as the Disco Biscuits, it was kind of, we developed a little bit of a, you know, negative ego from that. And then we kind of lost our through that summer and into the next year, this is my opinion, I kind of feel like we lost our um, identity, ironically, right? You know, we lost the fact that, you know, we are the Disco Biscuits. We're not a band that, you know, can play pre-programmed electronic music, you know? The patriarchs of the transfusion sound. Yes. Right, ironically. You know, now... You know, part of what we're doing with Tractor Beam is to try and, like, you know, revisit what we can learn from pre-produced electronic music. And I think we're doing that very successfully, too. Is Tractor Beam kind of becoming your drums in space? Yeah, exactly. In terms of its placement in in, in the set. Um, You know, but it it took us until, you know, 2013, 2014, whatever it was, to have enough perspective and with that you know, maturity, I guess, to realize that, you know, trying to be a chameleon and become something that we weren't is just not being true to yourself. And, you know, once we realize that we are the Disco Biscuits and being proud of that, you know, warts and all, if you will. Um, But once we realized that, you know, this is who we are and became confident with that, then we hit like this new stride. And now you're creating and coming up with new material. I mean, it must be hard to create new material when you're having an identity crisis that might be part of the reason why right. yeah. there wasn't new business songs for a while right. and you say chameleon it just reminds me we're in Atlanta and oh, the chameleon, uh, the club, chameleon club in Laura's in 98, 99 right, right next <laughs> to that strip club or something alright so uh, yeah. one thing I, well, back in the day I got to travel around with you guys a, a bit actually I remember carrying your uh, Hammond up the, the stairs at the club in Plattsburgh. But anyway, one of the things I remember you used to do, you would sit into sound check and go through all the sounds and play them and bounce them off the band and get feedback. Hmm. Are you still doing that these uh. days? And with Billy and the kids, did you do that? Hey, guys, what do you think? Or, or were you just untethered, like do whatever sound you want at any moment you want? Yeah, I mean, there, there was... There was barely time for anything in Billy and the Kids, and at least this past week, um, you know, we had a lot of time to rehearse in Hawaii, which was awesome, but this past week was, you know, we did have a full production and rehearsal day, but, you know, for two shows, it went quickly. Um, so the last thing that needed to happen was for me to be like, Hey guys, what do you think of this sound? It's kind of like, you know, at this point, I think I have a pretty firm understanding of when to say something that has meaning. And if you don't have something to say, then you don't need to 
say anything. Did you hear what he just said, Seth? I, was, Lucy, I, 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 I know I was thinking what the next thing I'm going to say is. I'm going to lift that. I'm going to isolate that. And I mean, play it's, it on it's important. And, and it's something that definitely comes from maturity, right? And granted, it, it might be easier for, um, you know, a keyboard player than like a, a bass player, you know? Where like if the if the bass you know there there are moments where I'm like okay there's no need for me to play anything right now and when something appears to me that w- will need to be said then I'll come in and play it it never really lasts well, for you know all that long but you know sometimes I won't play anything for thirty seconds that's sure, the thing right? Colonel Bruce would teach all musicians yeah. was like you know you if if you're playing all the time then no you know that's not it like give it space well, but also with the keyboardist it's not just knowing all the keyboards but the way you can change from one to the other and make it make musical sense that seems to me that's change the part where I'm from keyboard to keyboard to move between keyboards and make it work uh, so right. you know how to play right. each and, one but and how it fits not what's always going on. successfully so because it could change the you know color colorization and the texture of like the jam and you know change what everybody's doing just by changing you know even if it's the same melodic line but on a different sound right like Everything will kind of change with that. So, so do you worry about going to the wrong sound and having getting catching glares from the? Of course, <laughs> of course. Especially when there's like you know choreography, for lack of a better word, right? It's like you know changing sounds isn't always just like pushing this button. You know, sometimes changing sounds is like completely repositioning my body, right? You know, to get over to the other keyboard, right? Uh, All right, we should go on the way back machine. <laughs> So you're five years old. Your you were your father took you somewhere to to learn classical music. Where were you living when you were five? Uh, right outside of Philadelphia. And my my next door neighbor was like the neighborhood um, piano teacher. So you know we all kind of took from her, and then I just stuck with it longer than most other kids. And um, but then you tailed off, and jazz pulled you back in. Yeah, what like, jazz? Huh? Any specific jazz? Like Monk or anything? Or um, I mean, Monk, definitely a huge influence. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what piano players uh, really called, caught my attention when I first got into jazz as much as just the overall concept of jazz, you know, which like I hadn't really been fully exposed to, or for that matter, you know, transferring my knowledge of like, okay, I understand sort of how this piano thing works, but then having a a teacher, you know, such an influential teacher be able to, you know, help me understand that on a theoretical level and then that was the point where i was like yeah i'm done with classical just i want to i want to know more about this jazz thing this is early mid-teens is 12 13 something like that um and then like started taking a deep dive and you know the summer between my uh sophomore and junior year of high school um i went to eastman school of music which has like an exceptional musical department definitely jazz department as well um and did kind of like a full summer there like a deep dive into like college level jazz 
Um, and then were you gigging too around that time? Did you have bands to play with? So had a new teacher at this point that was definitely gigging around Philadelphia and, you know, would like throw me some gigs or have me like show up at his gigs and let me sit in and, you know, kind of started dabbling with that. And it was the reason that I went to university of Pennsylvania was to kind of like Mm -hmm. maintain those contacts that I had made during those formidable years of high school of like, okay, you know, I'm going to still continue to do this jazz thing. And I remember, you know, freshman year at the university of Pennsylvania, like walk out of the the quad which is like where all the freshmen would stay in like a you know tuxedo-ish thing and a keyboard under my arms and like walking out to like whatever jazz gig that you know i was trying to like continue with and imagine seeing a young iron magnet trotting around like that well i mean look he was he, he had two options he could do that or he could sell snow cones right um so and then uh you know i met the biscuits and kind of was you know i I didn't You, you saw an ad right No, 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 no. Uh, A mutual friend uh, of mine and Mark's introduced us because they got into some fight with like their keyboard player before they were named the Disco Biscuits and playing a college, uh, playing a fraternity party or something like that and was like, you know, I know somebody that plays keyboards and I remember the phone call where, you know, I spoke to Mark and we spoke about music and... Well, the funny thing is they were with the name, based on the name... Which some people might ma- Magner Magnum, you know, right there. Well, there's that story where the, the, they thought that I was yeah. like this, like you know, forty year old. Like yeah. you know, we're all in our low young twenties at that point, and they for they some reason thought it was a uh, yeah, this like forty year old like you know black jazz pianist, and like <laughs> I walk I walk in with my like backwards like you know North Carolina Tar Heels hat, you know, as like little fraternity kid. Um, so, what do you remember from that first time you sat down to play with them? Um. I remember really liking, you know, I'd never really been in a rock band before, right? You know, played in like some bands in high school, but they were mainly like, you know, jazz or jazz fusion-ish, you know, projects. So that was kind of fun. Were you hesitant um, for, to go rock? No. Well, I, I had to learn how to play rock. It took me a few years to like be able to figure out how to take the color out of my chords that I'm so used to in jazz, the upper extension of chords and, you know, um, dumb it down to a, you know, a triad or a power chord or something like that. Um, but yeah, so we had a couple of rehearsals and then, um, the band exploded into something and Mark left and quit the band before our first show at Smokey Joe's. So our first show that we performed as the Disco Biscuits at Smokey Joe's on Penn's campus, um, was actually with, uh, uh, and then I called in a, a Philadelphia jazz bass player named Paul Gaiman and he played that show with us as the Disco Biscuits and that was, huh. cause that was the first time that you know we were smoky joe's needed a name to put up on the chalkboard outside and you know sammy had heard the terminology a week before thought it was funny was like disco biscuits and what was mark so pissed about you guys make fun of the jets or something no he 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 wanted an opportunity he he, it doesn't matter what he was pissed about i think his (laughs) his uh, ulterior motive was that he wanted to go see fish at like uh the the great i don't know great went or great woods there it is yeah wow that's so funny so um there's a key thing you skipped over in there though there was there was one time around 98 99 where you introduced the new keyboard sound that basically changed that that began the whole transfusion um there was a halloween show 
Can you tell us about that night? Uh, yeah, it was, it was it was Halloween of 98, and we were playing a fraternity on Locust Walk. And um, the weeks leading up to this, I had, like, been in 8th Street Music, which is a music store in Philadelphia, was a music store in Philadelphia. Um, and the confluence of, like, being there, along with, like, you know, reading some articles in Keyboard Magazine, whatever, there was this one keyboard, and it's called the JP8000, and it's still part of my setup till this day, not the original one, but um, just, you know, uh, like, out of... Uh, um, like out of a movie, right? Where like the clouds part and it's like, oh, you know, this is this is the sword that you need. Um, and I, rem- I, I remember specifically, you know, telling my dad I'm a, you know, sophomore in college at this point. And, you know, at that point, the JP 1000 was probably, I don't know, 1200 bucks, 1500 bucks tops. Um, and being like, I really want this synthesizer. I think it will change my life. You know, I remember like deliberately saying that to him um so he bought me that jp8000 and um i can't remember whether that was definitely the first gig with it i can't recall whether we had rehearsed with it prior but like you know the story is kind of like you know i still had the man you know it's it's a laid-back gig at like a fraternity party on halloween so like some the manual was opened like some pages (laughs) that were you know dog-eared and everything that i needed to to check um but it changed the um it changed the sound of the band instantly right you know it changed us from a you know guitar driven band with backing keyboards and and organ to a guitar driven band with you know a synthesizer making these sounds that you know you were starting to hear coming up from you know the underground right like this is still the 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 90s in america you know so whereas electronic music might have been bigger in europe at the time you know it was definitely popular here in america but like it was um at its beginning stages of that you know and kind of starting to see it and you know pop up in soundtracks of movies or commercials or whatever it was but you know it certainly you know it took another decade for it to you know reach its maturity level You'd have someone like LTJ Bookham playing in Europe for like 30,000 people or something like that. And then Crazy. then playing in a room this big. Right. I mean, in sure. the States. It was like the craziest thing. But, sure. but yeah, the, Europe was way ahead of us. But now, I mean, it, would, would you say Europe's still ahead in it or is it pretty leveled out now? With with elect- is Europe leveled out in the U.S. So in electronic oh, it's music? It's huge over there, isn't it? I would think so. I would think so. Hmm. How um, did you notice John and Mark's playing changed when you bought after that? Oh, yeah. I mean, they have a new um, texture to play with, you know, but I think it was more Sammy kind of playing differently to it, right? Because like, you know, just because you put a synthesizer in doesn't really like, you know, move the needle to where you really need it to be. You need the full band there with you. But once you put in that texture of those sounds and then the driving beats start to change with it, you know, then all the other chips start to fall into place, you know, pretty naturally. So did that inspire you to start writing? Because the Spaga was your first one you wrote for the Biscuits, right? And that came out about a year or two after that? Yeah, the, I can't remember decades anymore of, of my life. I'm at, the, I'm at the Huey Lewis stage of my career. <laughs> you know? But that, but but Spock was the first. I mean, you were helping, you doing your input with the other stuff, but that was the first song you brought to them, right? Uh, I don't know whether that was the first. Or was Wet? Is Wet you? 
no wet wet as mark but there was like there, there was stuff that you know like all of us have songs that never made it you know through the through the test of time um there was definitely some like jazz tunes which i you know like smoothie king was oh, something yeah. that you know Spaga the biscuits that, right? played spaga only did it once um but but smoothie king was definitely played in the early days by the biscuits a, a bunch and just never um made it named in atlanta i don't know if you remember that you named that when you were in atlanta i named it in atlanta yeah. oh interesting you know i do right? not remember that because it was we had smoothie king stores back then they went, yeah interesting you guys had a bunch it also sounds like you know smoothie king banana smoothie king banana smoothie king banana um, you know. So, song. how did you ease in compositionally? That that seems even tougher than just jamming with the guys. But to like write stuff that is yours, but that fits this motif that they've already started. Um, I don't know. It it you know it, it happened because we like lived together, um, all post college. You know, for like mm. a few years post college. I was in so that, that house was a couple kind times. of like what we would do when we weren't, you know, in a van traveling from city to city and we were at home, you know, it would just be the four of us and our instruments all set up in like the band room and, you know, either I'd be playing and, you know, working on something or bring somebody in for a section, you know, hey, what do you think about this? And that, that's how we all were, you know, hey, yeah. I've got this, you know, let's go into the band room and, and workshop it, you know, and whether it's five minutes or five hours and then, you know, see you tomorrow and see how it continues to develop. And then we go out on the road the next week and try it out. You know, and that's how such a valuable moment in time to have that yeah i mean the foundation yeah. the the level of way to communicate to have an idea and have it just flow and without sitting there i mean and this by the way is also before you have the iphone recording uh notes and everything you know which helps but the that consciousness has got to yeah I mean, what are your memories of 99, that explosion year? He just said he doesn't remember decades. Yeah, yeah but it started in clubs, and by the end, they were playing New Year's. I don't know. It just blew up, it seemed, in 99. I mean, what I remember most about it is that we were tapping into something that people were enjoying, and, and the same type of enjoyment that we were getting right like we were grading music at the time that we liked so you know and certainly in in you know 97 and 98 we were you know that's you know and it was an added bonus that there was people that would show up to the mm -hmm. club as we got to you know play music that we liked playing but by 99 is when we realized that there was definitely a lot more people out there that also enjoyed listening to the music that we liked yeah. listening and to and making and you know with that type of like you know symbiotic energy transfer of like now we can all grow together and the support that you have of you know a fan base that you know and granted the biscuit fan base is you know voracious and you know <laughs> rabid and you know they listen and, and loyal and for, for sure they listen you know, carefully when they're dancing a lot of these uh -huh, folks you know and and supportive so that would definitely you know that energy would transfer into us mm. wanting to do it more you know wanting to play more shows wanting to provide the fan base with with new songs wanting to provide us with new songs or new yeah. styles and new concepts so and that timing in 99 was perfect to build that because you look then fish goes on hiatus and that really gave you guys a, a, a boost right but then they started through that one then you had another mark leaving episode oh yeah probably don't want to talk about and then with the triscuits and that although the guy from arthur dent there's a show with the guy from arthur dent foundation that's kind of cool but i don't know i always want the four of you guys yeah. I'm guess. the only one that's never missed a show. I know, that's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, John broke his arm. That was the, what was the one? You played Red Rocks with Tom Hamilton and... 
Well, did you that, have to do like the the Roger that, Waters that thing? That was that wasn't because he broke his arm. The the Mega Biscuits was because of him breaking his arm, and that was Tom Hamilton and Chris Machete. Right. But um, when we played Red Rocks with Billy and Mickey, um, we brought in Tommy to kind of like help us do the things like you were talking about before that you know tommy did ever so brilliantly with billy and the kids you know and to have an extra voice to be able to harmonize with um you know and an extra guitar player especially you know for grateful dead songs um you know if there's going to be two drummers it's kind of hard to play that Uh music with with one guitar player you know and i gotta say though you grateful dead tommy hamilton you, I mean, thinking of, uh, you know, Scott, all these guys that were like just like hardcore jam band, like, you know, are now. Reed Mathis. Reed, and it's just, you know, Joe, everyone. It's just so funny to see you all now playing Grateful Dead music. Let's and play, carrying the torch for the carry, dead. Very much so. Very much so. To and some getting extent. a lot of respect. And it's just kind of interesting because a lot of people that like like the Grateful Dead had no they maybe heard of the disco biscuits but they never listened to them you know uh, and now they're listening to you and yep. it's kind of interesting yep. it's just like you know i mean this is this is a uh, oh my god what was the, yeah this is all wetlands it's like all the wetlands crew now it's paydirt. I know a lot of old crusty deadheads, and it's paydirt for me to see these young musicians crushing the music so well and aren't serving it well. I mean, um, it's cool even seeing like the crusty old deadheads being so like excited right now by this Billy and the Kid stuff. I mean, you know, the, rewatching the streams from this past weekend, and you know, I think Jonathan Healy did a great job really capturing the energy. Um, you know, not just the energy of the music that was coming from stage, but the energy of the crowd as mm-hmm. well to be mm-hmm. able to like you know kind of feel as if you were there or to be able to feel the you know happiness and the electricity that you know ex- existed in that venue um but yeah man you look out at some of like you know the the camera work when it pans into the crowd or you know we'll focus on a group of people and just like you see these old i, I won't say crusty but you see these I old can say it, you, I'm one you can say <laughs> you see these old deadheads you see these young deadheads you know like and and just with the smiles on their faces is fucking powerful man yeah. do you feel like you're tapped into like i mean it's, let's get all metaphysical but playing that music in that crowd it's got to feel like you're connected to and you must feel legacy. the bear at points i mean it it is really cool knowing that you know i'm a, a small footnote in that you know story for yeah. sure you know as well listen you know to to be able to play in a band with you know a living member of that band you know yet alone the Mm -hmm. the opportunities that i've had of you know playing with 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 each of them you know in varying ways throughout the years um uh, with the exception of phil um is is you haven't played with phil i thought you did i've never played we've we've hung with phil a lot we we had the sim uh we've hung with phil but we never got the opportunity to, to play with phil um but you know to even listen to these stories from billy you know is just like wild like the guy's a national treasure you know yeah. and like you got a favorite you can share <laughs> i know it's tough to ask put you, you on know the spot. He, just like like whole whole tell a story and be like you know man this one time me and pig and i was like whoa I know. <laughs> you talking about Big Pen? He was like, "Yeah, we went out with our 22s or whatever the fucking story was, right?" And it was just like, 
he's telling a story about like his friend, right, right. you know, Pigpen, not this like mythological like figure that right. I have like in right. my head. Um, you know, and, and Bobby will do that too. Bobby will be like, you know, you know, well, Jerry used to say, you know, and, and I'll just be like, wow, man, like, like he said it to you and now you're saying it to me. The um, one time I saw the dead at Red Rocks, they had a little spat with the promoter at the end of the run. Did Billy mention anything about that? No. They wanted to do another encore. I heard Mickey Hart and whoever promoted had a, had a whole to do. It was 84. I missed the seventh game in the Celtics-Lakers to go to that How show. do you remember what game? How do you, know, how do you know there was Because I, w- I followed the whole Celtics season, and then I was like, oh, win this, win this in five, win this in six, and we couldn't, and then I had already planned the trip. There was no way around it. That was the toughest. That was like the first time music and sports really crashed. How do you know that Mickey and the promoter in 1984 were? Oh, were, that was a big story. They, oh, it was. Interesting. Yeah. They did U.S. Blues twice. What do you mean? They did U.S. Blues in the Encore the first night, and then the third night they did it again, and they wanted to come back and do something else afterwards. And the promoter was like, no, 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 and they were supposed to have a five-minute grace period or whatever, and they, and they had I mean, a, it, is a lot, it is a lot of money when you go over at Red Rocks, right. by, even by a minute. Hmm. But, um, Ask Billy about that one. Why did they do, why did they do U.S. Blues? Sometimes they forget. I've seen them do day job back-to-back nights. You know? Interesting. Just, sometimes they forget. Interesting. Enough about me, though. You mentioned a couple of musicians that... Um, that I don't think get enough credit. And Chris from Rack, Chris McKetty. Machetti. You, uh-huh. Machetti, excuse me. Somebody's get there. See? He doesn't get his due. I mean, he he's you've worked with him in a bunch of capacities and, and you've he's really good at arrangements as well and, and Oh, he's a killer guitar player. I mean he's no longer a professional musician, but he, you know, still plays guitar. Uh because that's like, you know, part of who he is. Right, and yeah. he still has, you know, the <clears throat> the talent like those chops aren't you know and, and it's part of the impetus for why he's still playing is so that he could keep his chops up to par um you know and so they don't uh, just just you know deteriorate over time as they can do so yeah he forces himself to you know play guitar he takes lessons still you know like learning jazz stuff and yeah he's so awesome. would you ever crank up conspirator again for campusco or something I mean, I would love to. Every now and again, when I, you know, something will come up, like in a in a Spotify playlist or something like that, and then I'll mm-hmm. go down a quick like router or something will come up in a post, and I'll go down a quick rabbit hole. I'll be like, man, the, you know, some of these songs are really good. Yeah, Conspirator was you know, good. It was, yeah, a, it was a cool project. Like, Seems like there could be a side stage at Camp Bisco with for you for your project and for some of these other projects that aren't EGM. You know what I mean? Right. You could have Spog, have your, even maybe Sunday Sunday afternoon ambient music or something. Yeah, right. what about a little ambient music by the pool at holidays? That could be cool. That would be pretty Well, Yeah, I think it would be cool. Um, what, and what about, speaking of holidays, uh, are you going to, is there is there still blood between uh, Umphreys McGee and the Disco Biscuits in terms of pranks, or has the pranks calmed down? Oh, there's always blood between the two. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're both after the jam band crowd. You know? oh, yeah, I've always right. felt like, you know, jam bands should be treated more like the WWF. <laughs> you know? Humphreys <laughs> McGee, you're going down this weekend. <laughs> um, it, it is, it, you know, in honesty, it's, it's a, if anything, competitive, it's a friendly competition. For I mean, sure. it's, you know, we're part of the same ecosystem that supports each other and lifts each other up. And, you know, this isn't like a, you know, a competition of, of any mm-hmm. sorts. We're, we're, yeah. we're all in this to win this and whatever abilities we have to, you know, help each other or collaborate well, with each other or do more events with mm-hmm. each other where, you know, one plus one can equal three. Yeah, um, a dumb so, tour could play amphitheaters. Right, right. Uh, one well, plus hold- one equaled one and a half in that, in that. <laughs> 
that case, but yeah. But what about like, so like a band like that to help, you said help each other out, lift each other up. So through the pandemic, did you find yourself connecting with musicians from, you know, like Umphreys and other folks and just kind of touching base with them and just having some just real talk? Yep, absolutely. You know, definitely remember multiple conversations with Joel, you know, specifically at like the, the beginning of the pandemic, you know, kind of just like, what are, what are you guys doing? You know, how did like... How, organizationally, you know, right, not, right. not just like this is before checking in with everybody, you know, on on you know the mental health. How's how you doing? You know, how how's everybody feeling? How's it with the kid? You know, stuff like that, which we definitely all did towards the band, beginning of the pandemic. Uh-huh. It was like how how are you you how are you doing it? like i'll tell you how we're doing it and i don't know if there's something that you could learn from me or i can right. learn from you or you know it was it was definitely you know it was tough, right? You know, like now, did you in coming out of the pandemic um, with your crew? Is all the same crew back, or did you lose anyone in the mix uh, through like just I didn't have a job and I got a job doing this and I can't come back? Yeah, every, uh, everybody came back. That's awesome. Wits an Atlanta guy. Yeah, Wit is yeah. Wits your an son. Atlanta guy. He grew up. Uh, he, so, he was so, born not too far so from Pat, here. So Pat Pat was with us uh, for the first uh, couple of months after the pandemic, and, uh-huh. then, and then changed course and brought Wit in. So this is Wit's like second months. But yeah. Oh, I feel like Wit's been with you for years now. No, no. I mean, he's been a fan for years. Sure. That's for sure. Sure. <laughs> but all right, we're almost done. What are your, what are some of your favorite uh, sit-ins? Like, you guys had Stanley, Jordan, and O'Teal early, early, early in your career. You've had some cool sit-ins over the years. Not that many, but you've had some cool ones. We're not a sit-in type of band, right. you know? It, like, never really seems to... Sit-ins are hard in general, I think, right? Um, but I don't think we're a band that, you know, is good with, with sit-ins. Um, we do feel comfortable, you know, like Hamilton said it with us at the man during the encore, yeah. you know, but we're so comfortable with him and Hamilton knows like the entire biscuit catalog at this point anyway. Yeah. So that definitely worked. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been some cool stuff over the years. Stanley Jordan, who else? You were so young. Sam, Sam Watterson. Oh, right. He did the law and order thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, you should bring that back one show. Do the old Law and Order thing. Les Claypool. That, that was really good. Oh, Claypool. Um, Travis Tritt. That oh, was yeah. at the Jammies, right? What the, did you play with him? That was, we did uh, a song of his called Honky Tonk History. Mm. And then we did um, House Dog Party Favor. And the chorus, was he, which he sang, was Country Boys Out of His Mind. Again. <laughs> hey, right. hey, Shappy, if you're listening, it is time to bring back the Jammies. And, you know, listen, if you got to do it in Vegas, the Brooklyn Bowl, that's fine. A lot of people want the Jammies back. I, just, I feel like it's 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 due. It's, it's, it's time. Right? I mean... Look forward for us. What? What do you? Where do you see the biscuits going? Are we going to get this big, massive tour eventually? To the moon, isn't that what the kids are yes. saying these days? At the, well, to yeah. either Richmond or the moon. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's a hunger for. I mean, these. It's fun to see the weekend things, but I think you guys play the best when you're out there on the road slugging it out. That's when. That's when the sickness so, reigns. It's, it, listen, it's definitely true. The more consecutive shows that you play, the warmer that you're going to get. Um, the problem is that most people like to go out on Fridays and Saturdays and more specifically Saturdays than Fridays. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our business model has been, well, fuck it. We'll just bring the country to us, you know, wherever it is that we decide to set up on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever it is, you know, getting onto a tour bus, which takes its toll, right. Of, you know, on the the crew having to set up and reset up every Mm -hmm. night, 
takes its toll on us trying to like, you know, figure out how to get enough sleep on a tour bus and then, you know, four hour drive. Then you got to wake up in the middle of the night and go into your hotel room and try and get the second half of like your sleep. And that's always disrupted. And I get it, it. it's, it's, you know, there are bands that do that and have figured out that flow, but that hasn't been our business model for, you know, years and years. And this kind of has, and I think that it works. So, you know, yeah, it's a little weekend warrior, but you know, for our demographic that we have, it's nice for, you know, the, the 40, 45 year old parents, you know, to sure. be able to like, you know, Hey, you're going to stay at grandma and grandpa's and, you know, we're going to go away and get a nice hotel in Denver or Atlanta or Chicago for the weekend and be able to have the impetus of, I'm going to catch two shows. I'm going to catch three shows. But um, as the devil's advocate in me wants to say, not saying go on the road for the next four or five years, just do one massive tour and maybe on the weeknights play small rooms that are webcast friendly. So you sell them out. You don't have to worry about competing and make it webcast centered and have them start at seven. People can sit at home and what, and there's more revenue stream for you. I mean, I'm not adverse to trying all these things, but I am kind of adverse to being in Cleveland, Ohio on a Tuesday. <laughs> no offense to Cleveland, although I'm no, not no, really sure city. what they're... I mean, it's just not your home. What do you prefer, though, North right. or South Dakota? <laughs> huh? What do you prefer, North or South Dakota? I don't, I don't know much about the Dakotas these days. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. No one's ever been, I've been in South Dakota a bunch. I like South Dakota. Adam Vinatieri went to school there. Well, let's uh, let's let him. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. It's it's great to see you guys. It really warms my heart to see you go up there and crush the dead shit, and uh, find the right sounds to fit that music. And uh, after all these years of seeing the biscuits, it's it's a really as a music listener one of those special things. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Benji, for your part in that too. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Seth. Yeah, thank you. Always good seeing you guys. Yeah. See you down the road. Yeah, man. And uh, drop a bomb on us. Throw down tonight. Oh, I mean, it has to. After the uh, after the lightning storm last night, we're we're in for something for tonight. Yeah, and evolve. Ready, ready to evolve. <laughs> Very nice of Aaron to give us time because the band was rehearsing. They have new material like we heard and um, they, they had rehearsal time and, and eating time. And Aaron was really kind to break off uh, 90 minutes to talk with us. That was, that was very cool. Yeah, man, that was very cool. Um, he's such a great, he's a, he's a real mensch. If you want to, you know, go there. He has played your um, Seder before not just my standard he just did the um uh the relics and uh uh they did a rush Hashanah and yom kippur service online 
Um, he was a part of that as well. Just, but he's a community man. He gives back to the communities he's involved. He's a good dude. I'd like to say, nice to to see- go ahead. No, it's just really, it was nice to sit down with him and, and chat about everything, not just the disco biscuits and uh, kind of hear, hear a little bit more about where he's come from. And, and he's grown as a musician. He, he, he's worked hard. You know, I love how he talks about how his wife pushed him to get the stuff out, which right. our next our next episode is with Jeremy Garrett from the String Dusters. And we have something similar going on there, too, with Jeremy's most recent solo album. But we'll get to that. And also, someday I want the biscuits to again tour with Umphreys McGee. And speaking of Umphreys McGee, my Umphreys Wow show will debut in October on Dropped Among This Crowd Media, Seth. We're going to oh, go wow. through. We're going to start by going through songs and you can learn about some of their first old classics, but we'll get around to the new stuff. You know what I mean? Like they have the Legos, as we've learned on the show, the songs are built from Legos. So we're going to we're going to talk about Legos of origin and talk about the songs themselves and about Legos of other songs that came out of these songs. So it's going to be really cool. We've got we've already interviewed Brendan. We're interviewing Ryan next Wednesday and, and Joel shortly thereafter. And um We'll start pumping out episodes and continue interviewing more band members to uh, illustrate the history of the songs. We've been learning. I've been learning so much. I didn't know crap about Humphreys, man. Between Jimmy Knowledge and talking to band members specifically about songs, I'm, I'm going to be a real knowledgeable Humphreys fan soon. Give me, give me six months, Seth. Give me six months. No, I don't. I mean, on, you're already. You, no, you're. You're. Come on, like you're already an Humphreys nerd. You've been a freak of them for like years. To not know Jimmy knowledge is teaching. He's taking me to new levels, new levels. Well, good for you. Well, thank maybe you. I'll write a much. book. Ah, maybe so. So thank you folks for listening. Jeremy Garrett next week. We've got other things cooking. We'll try to get your way and um, hopefully get back on the, Oh, and I might do uh, something for the drop too. So keep an eye on the drop. I might do an interview for them. Cool. Well, folks, thanks for listening. I'm going to go do an auction. Peace out. Seth has been crushing it. Well, I'm just working. It's nice to be working again. But, yes. oh, it, you know what? I don't even know when this is coming out. But if it hasn't come out, if it's if it's not October 1st yet, then go to bitpal.net slash mempho uh, and check out the mempho auction. Uh, we've got this. We're raising money for St. Jude, helping to put an end to childhood cancer and other mm-hmm. life-threatening diseases. Uh, you can make a donation there. 100% of the proceeds from this auction are going to St. Jude, a hundred percent. And we've got things like uh white for panics performing, and we're going to get a, a washburn guitar that uh, panics going to sign. Uh, we've nice. got posters and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but we've got um, uh, Ava brothers are signing a banjo. We've got some drum heads being signed. So we've got a lot of memorabilia like that. Uh, and then your standard, you know, trip to like uh, Tuscany and places like, uh, you know, the Caribbean so, and all that. So, uh, but lots of cool stuff, lots of memorabilia set lists. Uh, and who knows? I mean, once we get to the festival, uh, we get vinyl, we get all sorts of stuff wrapped in it. So check it out. You can go to just text Mempho to two, four, three, seven, two, five, or go to bidpal.net slash Mempho. Thank you. This is one of the great things about Seth's auctioneering. Rocktioneering is uh, all the money he's raised for organizations such as this. And it's only, only the beginning. Now we, as far as the ending of this podcast, we're going to play an example of Aaron's ambient work. We're going to play a song from Spaga. But before that, I couldn't resist. He talks about Carlos Santana, and it's it was just so cool. But we're going to run that right here, and you you may hear this again on a future Billy the Kids episode. But uh, but 
check this out. Take us there, Seth. See, see you next episode, folks. Adios. He showed up to play. You know, at first <laughs> it was like, um, you know, hey, Santana's going to come. Like, oh my God, that's so fucking cool. You know, he's going to play on two songs. So we were kind of expecting this, like, you know, he's going to come in and play his two songs, be gracious, and then get out of there. But he showed up early. He showed up to, you know, hang with us for a little bit. Good to know you. Um, you know, awesome. kind of like get to know us. And there was this really cool moment where, um, you know, we're set up on the lawn and we're sound checking, you know, getting his guitar, making sure that we could hear it, making sure that he could hear us. There's now, you know, this is day three. So, you know, we have another variable, which is Carlos fucking Santana. So we're kind of like going through the motions there and, you know, feeling each other out musically a little bit, but mainly as a sound check. And James Casey was not there uh, for this sound check. He got stuck in like crazy traffic. So he was just late. Um, And then when he finally showed up, he goes into, you know, his designated spot and we all kind of like, you know, notice that, you know, oh, James is here, but Carlos hadn't met James yet. <laughs> um, and so Carlos looks over at him and, you know, instead of going over and be like, you know, oh, hey, man, I'm Carlos Santana, you know, he, he looks over at him and he goes, Ba-da-da-dear. and James goes, and Carlos goes and James goes and then this goes back and forth and back and forth right and to the point where they're and it gets faster and faster where they're almost like playing the same line at each other Um, and Carlos in like his excitement as this is going on we're all watching this like magical moment happen and then Carlos starts like you know getting closer and closer to him with like each lick in excitement he just keeps on taking these steps until he finally like rips the cord out of his amp and, and that moment was over and i was like huh well, it was such a cool That's way really to cool. to yeah. introduce yourself to you know yeah. A, yeah. Music, a new yeah. person to music a new energy yeah. yeah so did he show up with a guitar with his own stuff he, he he had uh he had his tour manager with him his longtime tour manager and uh showed up with like a $100,000 amplifier <laughs> and a guitar and a couple of pedals that he didn't even plug in. He just went straight into the amp. Well, Had we, you well, met hold him? on. What we really need to know, though, Rob, is what is Carlos Santana's favorite Disco Biscuit song? Uh, that I don't know. However, his his timbale player, and I have met Carlos Santana before because we were recording at uh, Fantasy Studios in Oakland, California, okay. when the Biscuits were recording Senior Boombox. He was uh, recording, I think, like one of the follow-ups to, um, what was that, Rob Thomas album? Uh, super, super natural. Ling- yeah, right. Supernatural. So he's like recording like Supernatural 2 or something like that. Um, so he was in the A studio and then we actually kicked him out of the A studio so that he could go to the overdub studio and we could begin our basic tracking of senior boombox. Um, and there was this, and, and kind of like I'd heard some stories about Carlos Santana in the studio and with the producer and stuff. And like, you know, yo man, like my guitar sounds like constricted like it feels like i just have shoes on too tight and i'm, I'm in a a field of wildflowers and i just want to kick off my shoes you know <laughs> like these i was like oh i love that you know help me take my laces off um for purity so but I, you know somebody also said like he's big into like ping pong he has like a ping pong table on like in the tour in the truck you know and gets set up backstage every time and there's a ping pong table in like the break room at fantasy studios and i 
definitely timed it appropriately <laughs> where I knew that like he had gone out of his studio to like down the hall to the bathroom or something. And like, I grabbed a couple of, of, uh, paddles and like, while he was on his way back, I was like, quick game. Ping pong scheming. Quick I love game. it. And he was like, oh, no, man, I, I only play ping pong with my tour manager. Something like, you know, polite. And I was like, come on. You didn't game. say I don't play barefoot. <laughs> quick game. So um, he took me up on it. Oh, that's awesome. And then, um, you know, as word kind of spread throughout the studio, then everybody like gathered around the ping pong table to watch me get spanked by Carlos <laughs> Santana. Uh, but, but yeah, and then his, uh, his timbale player, Carl Parazzi, yeah, I want to say. Yeah, he the guy that toured yeah, he played with Fish, fish four nights in 96. Yeah, right around the, the um, Interesting. Coral Sky Amphitheater. Remaining, yeah. I, saw I didn't one. know there was that. Yeah, that, that big that big run like an antelope into something yes. on the second set of Coral Sky. I didn't know he that did was like a little, like a, a little sliver of a tour with Fish. Huh. Yeah, Fishman told us a great story about him, but you, have, you oh, folks yeah. will have to go listen to that episode. Yes, Interesting. Um, yeah, so he played Timbales on Jigsaw Earth. Oh, oh, that's yeah. how that happened. Yeah. Oh, I had no clue. So when he shows up in Hawaii, does he remember you from the biscuits? Does he uh, does he have any understanding? Does he remember beating your ass with ping pongs? The I, 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 I the don't know, and I decided not to use the precious time that we had with yeah, Carlos right. Santana to be like, "Do you remember that time that we played ping pong together?" <laughs> right. No, I was just curious if he if he had said something or if he was like if he had some demonstrated any knowledge of the biscuits. Because um, what a double bill that would be. Biscuits no, and Santana. the the knowledge that he was demonstrating was um, his passion for for jazz which was really cool and like you know sat us down and we listened to a lot of music that he was playing for us we listened to like huh. almost an entire pharaoh sanders album mm. um we listened to uh this track the last song i hope i'm not letting a cat out of the bag here um, but the last song that chick korea ever wrote he gave huh. to carlos and carlos recorded it wow. which i'm assuming will come out at some point uh but, but he played that for us and that was really like awesome and special um but what was particularly cool about hanging with carlos is i I kind of feel like he was taking this opportunity to um, teach a younger generation of musicians things that he knows, things that he you know has been exposed to that his teachers kind of like taught him or his influencers you know influenced him and wanting to kind of like pass that on to a younger generation. Um, and I felt like that was kind of a deliberate thing of why he was like sitting us down and playing music and talking about music, you know, to make sure that these things that were you know, so impactful on himself as a, you know, younger musician can also be impactful and, you know, kind of spread it down the line. I thought that was neat. 